You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Larry Devlin, and I say at the outset that he is one of the legendary officers of the Central Intelligence Agency. He is one of the distinguished warriors of the Cold War. He has just written a book called Chief of Station Congo, and uh, it is probably one of the most thrilling accounts I've read by an intelligence officer. And I think one of the most revealing in terms of how enmeshed intelligence and policy become in the field when there's such a close relationship between the station chief, Larry Devlin, and his ambassadors. It is an extraordinary story, and I highly recommend it to anyone who hears this broadcast. We only have time for a few questions, and I would really like to sort of take Larry somewhat through his career, and I'd like to begin, Larry, and thank you so much for being with us today. I'd like to begin asking you how you were recruited to go into the CIA. I know it was at the time of uh, you had uh, uh, were in school, uh, hoping you had been in you had been involved in the uh, Mediterranean operations of the U.S. Army. You had distinguished yourself there. You had returned to the States, and you were. Uh, going to you were planning and going to Harvard to obtain a, direct, a directorate, a doctorate. Excuse me. What derailed you? What happened? How did you get recruited? Well, I might say first, I I was. I'm not sure that I. In fact, I can quite seriously say that I did not cover myself with glory. I was just one of many millions of soldiers fighting in the in the uh, Mediterranean area. I started my career in Tunisia in the, just at the end of the Tunisian campaign. I arrived for the last two weeks. Uh, from there, uh, it was Sicily, uh, Salerno, Anzio, and then uh, uh, Corsica, Sicily, and then Corsica. And then I went with the French into Elba, and then I landed with the American troops in uh, south of France, which was literally a picnic after Salerno and Anzio. We had very few losses. Uh, the, the fighting was easy. 
I didn't run into my see my first German tank until I got I was had the lead jeep going up the Rhone Valley. <laughs> let me a, let me take you from there right into Harvard, where you were approached by a very distinguished gentleman. I was uh, approached by McGeorge Bundy, whom uh, who you will know was the uh, foreign affairs advisor to both uh, President Kennedy and Johnson. And he, at that time, was secretary, as, as I understood it, was secretary of the Council on Foreign Relations when he recruited me, which was in 19, November 1948. And he at the time, he made the point that we were in a Cold War, that we must try and keep it cold and not let it get into a hot war. I agreed with him on that, feeling that it would be the, almost the end of the world if we started throwing atomic bombs at each other or, or missiles. I don't think I thought of missiles at that time. It was bombs that I thought of at that time. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll do this for, they, if they need me, I'll do this for a couple of years, and then I'll come back and get my doctorate because I wanted to be a university professor. Uh, I did not go back. I stayed with the agency, and I loved it, and I thought I was the luckiest guy in the world to get there. When you, when you were actually assigned to the Congo, where you became a station chief after a couple of other assignments, what did you think you were doing? What did you think your... your your mission was, and the, con the Congo was, I mean, it, 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 there was independence. A few days later, there was a, the Congolese army mutinied. There was a chaotic situation. You went as a young station chief. What did you think your I mission was? I went there, and uh, independence was 30 June 1960. Uh, I went there thinking that I was there primarily to recruit Soviets. That was my specialty, uh, trying to recruit them to work with, for us to stay in, po in position if possible. If they refused, then of course we would accept that if they wanted to jump over to our side. But that was my, my objective, and I thought that they would be just as confused and lost in Africa as I was, as I would be. Well, I know you mentioned uh, earlier today in the book signing here at the Spy Museum, um, that you also had a sense, because you had been so influenced by listening to virtually every broadcast of Edward of uh, Edward G. Murrow Edward, uh, during uh, the war. Edward R. Murrow, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, Edward, you're absolutely right. Memory's better than mine. Uh, Ed, uh, Edward R. Murrow. That you also had a sense that you were there to spread democracy. Well, it, that is part of it, that we would defend democracy through the Cold War and that we could perhaps avoid a hot war, which would involve great amount of killing, that intelligence was something which could be used by the U.S. government, as it could by other governments, for useful objectives, good objectives, as well as questionable objectives. You, your, your, your story, as you tell it in your book, is extraordinarily adventuresome. You, I know you. You, the book actually opens when you are uh, uh, taken captive by some rebel soldiers uh, who wanted, who ended up playing Russian roulette with you. I know you faced firing squads. You were placed under arrest. 
you had the most extraordinary set of of adventures in that country, both you and your family, I might may, and including your daughter, who was responsible for saving your life uh, towards the end of your tour. You were so thoroughly enmeshed in policy issues as well as intelligence. You had such a close relationship with your ambassadors. And I, th I would ask you, do you think that typifies the relations that embassy and station personnel have in such situations? I think it, it, they should in that kind of a situation where we did not have any policy. Our policy in, at that time in the Congo, the U.S. government policy, seemed to be if we have a question, let's go ask the British or the French or the, Ital or the uh, Portuguese or the Italians about the, if they control the area, we went and asked them. Uh, we did have intelligence officers in some of those countries, but they were there essentially as liaison officers to go and ask the question if we had a question. When I went to the Congo, I had in fully intended to concentrate on re trying to recruit Soviets. You know, uh, you and I shared a, a, a column today in the Washington Post deploring the situation in the Congo. It is, it is again falling into chaos. Uh, there's a brutal uh, treatment of the villagers throughout the Congo. Its health system has deteriorated. Its economy is deteriorating. It is not high on America's list of priorities. Do you, after your career dealing with African affairs, look back on that period and ask yourself in any way, was what you did worth it? Does that question come to you Yes, that question is, comes to me very often, Peter, uh, when, particularly at night when I cannot sleep and I lie there. This happens to old men. I think they sometimes have problems sleeping and they think of their past and should, should they have done something differently. Uh, and I, I tell myself that there was not much I could have done differently in the Congo at that time at least that unfortunately the Congo has fallen into questionable hands, just going back, going just to the current president. I don't know the gentleman. He's a very young man. He must have been obviously been very, very competent because his father started him in the army as a major general. I started as a buck private. Uh, I, it, so he must have been very competent. Uh, I know he has a, a one of uh, President Mobutu's sons, General Mobutu, Marshal Mobutu's sons, uh, is his minister of agriculture and in one of these four key ministers. Uh, I'm, I haven't been to the Congo since 1996 because they wanted to extradite me and charge me with the murder of Lumumba, which I did not commit, but I did not want to go have the, quote, pleasure, unquote, of going in front of a Congolese jury or judge and have them decide whether I had or had not murdered Lumumba. I, I want to come back to this issue a little bit at the end. But if we could go to the Lumumba issue, May I ask you how you learned 
of Washington's direction to uh, take care of Lumumba. How did that come to you? Received, what was your reaction? I received a cable uh, from the deputy director for plans at that time, Dick Bissell, uh, saying that uh, an officer whom I, a senior officer whom I would recognize would arrive in the Congo on or about the 27th of September, I believe that was the date, and that I was to take my instructions from him. This was most unusual, as I'm sure you would know, Peter. You would receive written instructions to carry out certain operations. So I thought this must be something terribly covert, and it was, of course, but not exactly what I had expected. And uh, I waited for the man, and when one day I walked out of the embassy and cut a corner from the embassy was a cafe. There seated was a man I recognized as a senior agency officer. We both walked toward my car. He knew exactly which was my vehicle. Walked toward it. We both got in. I had been told in the cable that the person coming with instructions would identify himself as Joe from Paris. As he got in the car, he said, I'm Joe from Paris. I said, I thought so. And I took him to a safe house where he instructed me that gave me my instructions, which were specifically that I was to not necessarily personally, as I found out, but I was to arrange at least the assassination of uh, Prime Minister Lumumba and that any means were permissible or so long as they did not lead back to the United States. I remember my reaction very well, which was I was astonished. I'd been in the agency at that time by 11, year, 11 years. I'd never heard of such a thing happening. And uh, I, I remember exactly my words, which were, Jesus H. Christ, isn't this unusual? And he said, yes, this is unusual, but these are your instructions and you will carry them out. I did not refuse because I knew that if I refused that I would be replaced immediately within 24 to 48 hours. Someone would be named and very shortly thereafter would arrive and I would turn over the responsibility for the station to them. I felt that I had plans for the station which would work eventually but would take time. And I, so I neither said yes nor no. I just said thank you very much, or words to that effect. I do not remember my specific words at that time. And uh, I sent, from time to time, I sent cables or dispatches to Washington telling them I was looking into various ways and possibilities, trying to gain access to the uh, his, Lumumba's bathroom because I had poison in toothpaste for him uh, or into this kitchen where I had some other things that, which would go well in the soup. But I did, not, uh, I did not really believe in the operation and had no intention of carrying it out. Uh, it sounds strange that an intelligence officer could have a conscience, but I, I had have a slight, a small one. Well, I know when you were when you were speaking earlier today, uh, you you said specifically you thought it was wrong 
Yes, I did. I saw no reason. Uh, not. It, it was not all uh, because I was pure, sweet, and innocent. I was sure that, I, I believed, I was not sure, but I believed that the Congolese, one way or another, were going to handle the situation in their own way. And they did, which was they uh, contributed to his assassination. And I think uh, there, at least one country has taken moral responsibility for that assassination. Yes, the, uh, Belgium has accepted moral responsibility for the assassination. They have not said that they encouraged it. They said moral responsibility. But in, I believe that they really knew very well what they were doing. Yeah. You know, going back to your, uh, your comments earlier about uh, in response to was it worth it, um, I, I think in retrospect, uh, you and others of us who served during the Cold War, we served at a particular time uh, we served the country's aims for a particular purpose, and even though the world may change, I I think what we did was worth it. I thoroughly agree with you on that, Peter. But I, I feel it in a sense that I was very lucky to be a to participate in that effort. I I had been through almost five years of of actual military life, not uh, combat period less just under three years uh, I'd been shot at I'd been frightened terribly frightened by uh, fighting and all that sort of thing but I was I knew that if we had a war and it was that kind of a war I could face it but I, I did not know how we could face an atomic war I felt that this could be the end of everything that I had ever known or believed in, the end of my country, the end of the, the, the end of all hope. We, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a career intelligence officer uh, and one who clearly follows current events, let me just ask you your thoughts about what we confront today. I was very much opposed to the our entry into Iraq. I did not. I, I did not know at the time whether they had uh, weapons of mass destruction or not. I questioned it in my own mind, but I didn't know. When I listened to uh, Colin Powell, Colin Powell. I weakened a bit, and I thought, well, maybe they do have this. They, maybe they're more dangerous than I think. But I felt we should try harder to reach an understanding through diplomacy, through intelligence use, through combination thereof, that we did not need to go to war at that time. I still feel that we should not have gone in, because I think we're in such a mess now, it's very hard to get out. Uh, if we suddenly close down immediately and pull, try and pull our, all our troops out within a few months, it appears that Al-Qaeda, or if that's the correct pronunciation, or Al-Qaeda, I'm not sure which is correct, uh, 
it looks as though they were right that they won. Do you, uh, just taking this a step further, aside from Iraq itself, uh, what would be your comments on the threat that we in the West uh, and America, Europe, and so forth face from the Islamic fundamentalists, the jihadists? Well, it's I a very it's a, different opponent that we've ever faced. Oh, I think it's a very serious uh, situation that we face, particularly when I look at what's going on in Great Britain, where it's not necessarily the first generation coming out, but the second generation. And these, these people are British citizens. They can come here. Uh, they're, they're welcomed into the United States. It would be quite easy to send in a group uh, such as they attacked the uh, New York. It would be easy to send in one or two or three people to do a specific operation. And I think that uh, my worry is, will they come in with a dirty bomb, that is, uh, it would be you know, a suitcase full of dirty bombs in which they could be left off in a street corner, in a theater, in a restaurant, in anywhere, and could kill literally thousands of people. Do you, see, as many of us do, do you see this as very much of, of another intelligence on the front lines war? Yes, I do. And I, it's a different kind of intelligence than which, that I was ever at. I think it's much more complicated than I knew. Uh, in the first place, uh, I do not know any, uh, of, I don't speak Arabic or any of the other languages of the Near East. And I think that would be essential. I think we need to penetrate these organizations. And to do so, we need people who well, I think the great majority should be uh, people of origins, uh, or, or, who's at least second generation, if not first generation, uh, Middle Easterners. There, uh, you know, there's been uh, a number of articles lately about young people being torn uh, between going into the private sector where they, they can make a considerable amount of money, help pay off their school debts, or uh, going into public service in the government. And you and I both uh, were in a rather peculiar form of public service, but it was public service. And we know a lot of young people listen to these podcasts. And I would just ask you as we end, what would be your comments to a young person asking you about possibly joining intelligence, perhaps specifically CIA, today? I would urge them to think about it very seriously, to know that they have to be prepared to work at strange hours. You, after all, you, you must meet your agent at his time, when it, he is free to meet you, not when you are free to meet him. In other words, it's not a nine to five job, but it's a job that's very important and a job that, that I think can help this government understand what is happening to it. I'm not sure that all our leaders understand what they're doing in the Near East, for, for example, today, 
or elsewhere in some other countries for that matter, it's not just the Near East, I think they, if the right kind of young man comes along or young woman, and I say young women because women can play a very strong role, with the equality to men and intelligence, when I came, there was a glass ceiling. There were very few women who became officers. They were good secretaries, they were good uh, assistants and various sorts, but they did not, very few had a, a serious, important position. Now it's wide open to women. And I would say this would be a, a, an excellent opportunity for women to show that they can do these things. I don't mean show, they shouldn't have to show. They can do them and I know it. I know because I have a daughter who has worked for the U.S. government, worked for the U.S. government many years, and did an excellent job. Also, she saved my life once. I must insist upon that. And I should let our, our auditors know that uh, that uh, incident is described with great detail in uh, Larry's book, uh, Chief of Station Congo, which has just come out uh, this year. Larry, it's been an absolutely delight to have you here today. Uh, we're honored by your sharing your time with us, and we thank you for your service to the country and wish you well for the future. Well, Peter, I can say only the same to you. Thank you. Because you served your country and our country. You were a chief of station. You know what it means. And I think that you probably feel that you were lucky, in a sense, to hold that position, just as I did as I felt, and uh, I really believe as much as a, uh, a priest can believe in his religion, I believed that we had to do what was some of the things that we were involved in, such as recruiting Soviets. Uh, I don't think, uh, as an example, quickly, uh, President Kennedy would have been unable to sh show down uh, Khrushchev had he not had the advantage of uh, Penkovsky, uh, the Soviet who knew exactly what the Soviet plans were, which were that we will not go to war over this incident. Right. Okay. Larry, thank you so much again. It's been my pleasure, Peter. Okay. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.